so Sally can't wait, she knows it's late as we're walking on by. Ryan's with us, kia ora Ryan. Kia ora Mr Chapman, how are you? Hey, how are you? Um, so Sally can wait, when I first uh, said the lyrics, <laughs> how long did it take you? Uh, it was instant. Matter of fact, it's kind of serendipitous. I was at an Irish pub in Plymouth on Saturday night, and some friends were doing covers on the stage, and I jumped up and sang Don't Look Back in Anger with them. Um, and so it was fresh in my mind. Fantastic. Beautiful. It's just such a, it's such a tune, it's such a reminder, isn't it, of how much a musical phenomenon Oasis were. Oh, they're unbelievable. They changed my life when I was a kid, and then I kind of sold my soul to the Ramones. As an adult, and yeah, uh, yeah I saw Liam twice. And seriously, where? At the Spark Arena. Fantastic, because you're a big fan of the song too, aren't you, David? Oh, you bet. Actually, there's a particular reason uh, it, it it's it has stayed with me, but was because they used it in the drama Our Friends in the North at a really poignant moment in the drama. That's a Brit one about um, uh, lefty politicians in the 60s, sort of coming of age thing. And it was marvellous. And, you know, I already loved the song, but somehow the putting it in music when it's used in, in a really compelling drama can just lock it into your memory forever, I think. Yeah, good on you, Ryan. Nice one. So still a good listing, eh? Even though they, I'm not gonna, they've, they're not around anymore, st- st- still good to put on the turntable every now and then. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't call her the timeless classic for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Kia ora, Ryan. That's uh, Ryan there who, uh, yeah, so Sally can wait. She knows it's too late as we're walking on by. A bit of response regarding that extra squirt of sauce. Um, Wallace, I was talking to a lady today who had a $6.50 scone in a local cafe, then asked for more butter to be sold, and it would be an extra 60 cents. She's not going back. It's a slippery yep. slope, isn't it, Janet? It is a slippery. See what see what I mean? Because what happens is people think that they're paying enough already, and it shows you where the squeeze is coming. You know, when when they go to to their favourite cafe to order a scone and they have to pay more for butter. Yeah. Also, just for finally, uh, just looking ahead of the show, I asked you how to grow passion fruit um, because they are notoriously fickle, and they are very very expensive. I want to know, and I know the listeners will uh, help me out on this. If you are a passion fruit grower, uh, text me 2101. What's your secret? But to this now, and the Council of Medical Colleges in New Zealand, CMC, they've launched an open letter calling on Health Minister Aisha Viral to ban direct to consumer advertising of prescription medicines. Now, these are a form of promotion that aims to market prescription pharmaceutical products straight to the patient rather than, you say, GP. So you'll see these ads in magazines, newspapers, social media, TV, radio. And um, I didn't know this, but New Zealand and the US are the only two developed countries in the world where direct-to-consumer ads of prescription drugs are legal. So signatories so far include Sir Ashley Bloomfield, former Labour Prime Minister Helen Clark, as well as all 17 New Zealand medical colleges. And with us is the Council of Medical Colleges uh, Chair, Dr Samantha Merton. Dr Merton, welcome. Welcome. Yeah, kia ora. Tell us more about this issue. What's wrong with having a ad for a prescription medicine on the radio or 
on the TV or in your Reader's Digest or whatever? <laughs> yeah. So I think the issue is that prescription medicines are often very specifically focused on um, certain conditions and for certain people. And so the advertising isn't targeted at specific people. It's just volume targeting to advertise a drug to, for sale. So we just have to remember that advertising is advertising for sale. And the problem with prescription medicines is that often they have side effects and they are problematic. And a lot of um, the issues and side effects don't come up until well into their use in the open market. So they'll go through clinical trials, etc., and be deemed safe enough. But then as time goes on with the what we call post-marketing um, experience, we'll find that there's problems with the medications. And there's some very good examples where significant harm has been done to patients because of drugs that have been advertised widely and um, the side effects have not been known. And the, once they have become obvious, they continue to be advertised and um, there's one particular one where the drug company got prosecuted for it but continues to make vast sums of money and has um, many other drugs that they continue to advertise as well. But by and large, wouldn't it be better having informed consumers? Because that's what some might say. You know, you're uh, it's a consumer-focused way of getting access to information uh, about medicine. Well, interestingly, Consumer NZ has also signed our letter to say that they want to ban it. So um, it's not. This isn't about informing people about medications and drugs. There is a, a one that I saw a couple of weeks ago, which was a particular type of medication for a very select group of people, and that was not obvious on the advertisement. And so people will be thinking, "Oh, I could try that," and in fact, it won't suit them or be appropriate for them at all because it's only for a very small cohort of people. So. Um, there uh, is information around these medications that is available, but it doesn't need to be advertised and pushed to people. It can be sought in other ways and found yeah. out in other ways. Janet Wilson. Um, Samantha, I'm really interested in this and how it happened in the first place, given that we're only one of two countries in the world in which we are allowed this. How was this able to um, to come into being in New Zealand in the first place. Do you know? Um, well, in our Medicines Act, it's not actually specifically banned. So the Medicines Act is 40 oh. years old. So at the time, it wasn't specifically dealt with. And ever since then, we have continued to review and say that when we do come to a review of the Medicines Act, we will look at the banning direct consumer advertising of prescription medicine. The European Union has looked at this multiple times and and has agreed that there should be a ban. The WHO says that um, prescription the prescription medicines should not be advertised. And so this is very much about prescription medications, not anything else. Yeah. And um, so it's very specific, but also we, we our law has been permissive without being prescriptive, whereas this is a chance to say no and become align ourselves with the rest of the world. David. Samantha, I'm also interested in this dimension of the question that this potentially fills up waiting rooms and uses up doctors' time um, dealing yeah. with people who, who aren't actually, to whom it is not suited. Is that a sub substantial problem? 
I think um, most of us would have a regular conversation with someone who says that they've seen something online. And even if that's once a week um, of a full-time doctor, then that's a significant amount of time. I think most of the, if you look at all the advertising, there's not enough clear information information in the advert that actually it does inform people about the whole ins and outs of the drug and what it's used for and who it's suitable for and what the possible side effects might be. So um, the the debate that then goes on is when we see a patient and saying to them, well, actually, you don't fit mit- fit the criteria or uh, this is not suitable for you because it has these particular side effects and you can't take it. Um, And there's some very good examples of where there are drug combinations that just do not go together and people wouldn't be aware of that from the advertising that goes on. Could, I'm just thinking uh, Dr Merton, could these medical ads be misinterpreted as public health messages? Absolutely. And I think that's where the pushback is, where people say this is informing patients. And I'd be surprised that if you had, I mean, technical information about medications is something that you have to learn. And we as medical professionals are taught through medical school. So having that ability to tease out what's appropriate and what's not is actually a learnt thing and takes time and to be able to put that into a 30-second ad is actually very difficult yeah. to can be able to communicate I, can, that information. Can I just say, though, that if we had Medicines New Zealand here, they would say, look, there were already a set of rules and regulations that applied to uh, to this, to the DTC. SA, sorry, DTCA, DTCA. and that they yeah. were overall, they were working well. Well, the thing about the rules that currently apply is that if you were going to complain, because the only way you can complain is through the Advertising Standards Authority, and I think there's one other mechanism, as a complainant, you have to pay. So if you're going to make a complaint, it costs you money, and therefore, and then you have to defend that, and it is a very uneven playing field when you're defending against a drug company who's advertising it and you as an individual are saying, I don't think what they're saying right. is true. Samantha, quick comment there, Samantha I'm intrigued by the whole philosophy of this. That it kind of run, runs, for obviously good reasons, counter to what we usually think of about information, which is to make it abundant and free and available to people in great volume and, and, and as much as possible. But it seems as though, in many respects, the way people get acquire a great deal of information about health and, and, and medicine is kind of counterproductive. And, and I, I just wonder, what, what's the philosophy that you, you're taught about in, in your medical studies about how... How you go at this? <laughs> Sorry, that's about, a bit of a long thing to answer. <laughs> so about how to inform patients, we allow people to hear yeah, as much or, or, possible. Yeah, where where the balance should lie? Should there be an abundance of, of information, or should there be right. a degree of control that, that that discourages people from you know becoming from using Doctor Google? I suppose. Yeah, I think um, we just have to remember that advertising is not informing necessarily. It's right. advertising a drug for sale. Yeah, so that's. Um, but I think the other thing is for information, there are many sources of information and they are Dr. Google and on the internet. And I, I mean, we have the same conversations with people about they think they've got this particular disease. And so um, they will have looked up Dr. Google and gone, oh, I think I might have, these are my symptoms and it will come up with a scenario that's mostly commonly says that you're going to die right. if you look on a computer. But um, the often people will 
put in stuff in a way that is um, interpreted in a computer setting in a binary way. And whereas actually sometimes when you're having a conversation with a nurse or a doctor, they all look at the nuance and you in particular as a person and your age and various other aspects of health Mm. that may be related to you and what is common for your particular group of people and then come up with a diagnosis that may be completely different. So the Mm. problem we have is medical terminology and medical language is a completely different language and Mm. informing people that way is actually quite tricky when you're using a different language. Dr. Merton, we will have to leave it there, but uh, look, I really appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you very yep. much. That's uh, Samantha Merton there, the Council of Medical uh, Colleges Chair on direct-to-consumer ads of prescription meds. Now, last week we talked to the, to the Salvation Army. Demand has tripled for food parcels. Kids Can says this winter, worst it's ever been. The Ka'ora Ka'ako Healthy School Lunches Program provides more than 220,000 lunches to nearly 1,000 schools a day. But... Treasury is questioning, is it worth it? With us is uh, Boyd Swinburne. He's the Auckland University Professor and Health Coalition Aotearoa Chair. Professor Swinburne, welcome. Were you surprised to see this program um, not fully supported by Treasury? Well, I mean, I think Treasury are intrinsically pessimistic and their job is to pick holes in everybody's budgets and programs, um, so that's probably not surprising. What what was surprising to me was that they didn't take the full living standards framework that Treasury designed, which looks at um, a very wide impact of benefits. They were looking mainly at uh, impact on attendance um, and a lot of the other impacts for example, around health and nutrition and food insecurity, uh, even local economies, um, enriching the school environments, local food system resilience. There's a whole range of um, potential impacts and, and measured impacts that we've just published on uh, a couple of months ago, actually. And I think that to do it justice, it really does need to have those wide benefits looked at. And yes, there is ongoing work, particularly a deep dive into the impacts uh, on Māori. Um, but I think really, if it's going to be uh, looked at fairly, it needs to be seen as, while, while this is money coming out of education budget, it has much wider okay. impacts than just education itself. Well, let's get straight to our panellist, Janet Wilson. Boyd, I'm really interested in that transactional analysis that they've done, and you've put your finger on it, that they looked at um, uh, it, it had no impact on attendance and that, um, it, it, it didn't have any impact on things such as um, school functioning, you know, paying attention in class, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. What's, by, by making this so transactional, are they actually trying to convince themselves that this isn't a good idea? <laughs> yeah, you'd um, wonder that, wouldn't you? You'd wonder yeah. that. And um, I think that one of the things that we find, I mean, we're doing research on this uh, within the Hawke's Bay, a deep dive into the impacts of... And one of the things that principals always say is that it does have an impact on attendance, um, even though that didn't show up in the evaluation. I think what's happening here is that the principals have their eye on those kids that generally, um, well, that often do not attend, and they're seeing greater attendance among that small minority, which they really count as a win. 
But when you mm. average it out over the whole school, it may not show up in the average attendance figures. So I think that's probably what we're seeing here. David? I'm also intrigued, boy. Uh, thank you. I, I, all of this makes perfect sense in, 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 in your telling of it, I, as far as I can tell. The one thing that struck me when I first heard about this was that, you know, it seemed to be putting an unreal, unrealistic expectation on what happens to food in any setting. You know, there is a degree of waste, is there not? You know, we, every, every household in the country look, tends to be leaving something behind at the end of the meal, doesn't it not? Yes, well, exactly, and, and Treasury talk about this as inefficiency, that there are um, lunches which they call surplus. So the Ministry of Education talks about surplus meals, in other words, those that are uh, have been made but have not been touched, and uh, waste, which is foods that, meals that have been half-eaten or something, and they go to waste. So those surplus food, those surplus lunches which haven't been uh, affected, they often get recycled. You know, they give mm. them to the kids um, that take them home after after work. I know the the ones that are struggling at home. Um, so a lot of those surplus meals do not actually go to waste. And in fact, if you had a system which had zero, on average, zero surplus waste, it would be failing because half the time there wouldn't be enough food for the kids. You've reminded me of something, actually. I took part in a little while ago in Upper Mutari where the, the community centre there puts uh, meals together that just go into a freezer that anybody in the community can come, just come in and, and get if they are in need. And what they were talking about there was the prevalence of kids who are coming to school with nothing to eat and, and the problem that creates. And it just seems so absolutely obvious that, that the, the problems that will follow if they can't eat are, 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 are going to be substantial and can be addressed so readily with this solution. Yeah, I agree. And then the schools are actually really very uh, inventive when it comes to recycling. They don't want to see waste, so they might have a freezer deal like that. They might give it to the kids. There are food rescue operations around where it goes to others in the community who are short of food. So Mm. um, nobody wants to see food, good food go to waste, and they are very inventive about how they uh, counter that. Very good, Boyd. Thank you for your time. Uh, That's uh, Boyd Swinburne there, uh, a professor uh, and Health Coalition Aotearoa Chair about these uh, school lunches there. Well, finally, uh, on the panel, Monday's panel, we have uh, Janet Wilson and Davis Lack, and uh, as always, just uh, loving uh, your company across the motu. Thank you for that. Your feedback is just so welcome here. I wanted to know about passion fruit, how to grow it. That's Monday's question, because they can be notoriously fickle. I can't get my head around it. But what could be more satisfying than going outside picking a passion fruit off your own vine and putting it on your muesli. They are the oyster of fruit, is my thoughts, if you can grow them. Uh, Can you recall Pratik? He wasn't a fan. He gave them 3 out of 10 when he tasted them on this show. But with us now is Gary. Welcome, Gary. Hi. Now, you bought two passion fruit plants five years ago. Tell us the story. Well, we bought these two plants, I won't say where, and we put them in and made up a nice little garden, put a weird trellis fence up behind. I mean, you could enter it in a flower show. But we only got two passion fruit. And then we thought, uh, one day we were up on the coming over the Takaga Hill, uh, I'm in the Nelson region, and we saw wild passion fruit growing, the slightly different type. Uh, anyway, we looked at that. Uh, so when I come home, we went into the shop, bought two new passion fruit plants, and we allowed them to grow up over a native tree, which is about maybe three metres by two metres across. 
And uh, we had two of those trees, so we put one passion fruit by each one. We put some dynamic lifter all around it for fertilizer. And then we put what I think is the secret is we put citrus fertilizer, uh-huh. spread it all around there about every three weeks and kept it well watered. And I'll tell you, we've had hundreds and hundreds. We've been keeping a local shop supplied with them. Wow. Um, we've had them ourselves. We make up things called spiders, which I don't, if you know what that is, do you? No, Gary. Okay. A spider is passion fruit, two or three of them, in the bottom of a uh, glass. Then you put a scoop of ice cream, and then you tips a can of uh, lemonade in. Oh, and oh, it yeah. is gorgeous. Spiders, yeah. Janet Wilson. Passion fruit spiders. Oh. It yes, and you can make ice blocks. We Janet. do that with them all. Stay, we, stay um, with us, Gary. Let's bring our panellists and get our Janet. Um, Gary, I'm really keen on the taste of those wild ones. Were they different from the commercial ones that you bought and grew yourself? Yes, they're quite a lot different. Uh, they're more sort How of long finger tight. Yeah, and of course the council's just gone up there and poisoned the whole lot. Oh, no. David? Yeah. My gran had a, a great big vine of them. I, I, from a child's recollection, I might be a bit skewed, but I think it was about a mile long. It was, it was just vast. And you took that off and ate it in the sun, and it was just Memories. beautiful. You know, they, they, these are. Um, I want. I, I fancy one of those spiders. Thanks, Gary. That sounds really oh, good. Well, they do. They grow a long way. I mean, you could just put a bit, put about two or three railway stations uh, between them all. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> massive how far they go. I love it, Gary. Um, do, do you think I'm right there, Gary? Do you think that um, passion fruit is the oyster of fruit? Oh, absolutely. It really is. And, um, you know, designed to be consumed raw. Yeah, you bet. Tell yeah. me, can, can you clear up something for me, Gary? Because obviously here you are, you're, you're a listener, you grow passion fruit in abundance. Uh, we're all very jealous of you. And we had Pratik on the program about seven weeks ago. He tasted his first passion fruit uh, and he crunched through them. Uh, and we got inundated with people saying that you don't crunch the pips. Do you crunch the pips, Gary, or not? Oh, absolutely. It's all part of the fun. And then you have to go and uh, pull the bits out of your teeth later. So it's a little bit like a, a goat or a sheep. You get to have another go at it. You, you would, Wallace, you didn't keep telling Pratik that they're the oyster, this oyster thing. I mean, all afternoon I've been thinking, God, I don't want oysters in my muesli. I, the, 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 the poor guy must have been you know, dis- discouraged before he even began. I just love this, no, Janet. And, Janet. And blow blow the muesli. No, no, not muesli. We need a big billowy meringue with you cream. You bet. Now we're talking. Now oh, we're talking. And don't, yeah, and don't be, don't be and squeezing. You, you don't need to squeeze any bloody tomato sauce on there. Well, well, I'll tell you what I want yeah, now. Right. Uh, a, a Monday evening, I want a spider, Gary. Well, we've got enough uh, passion fruit here to fill New Zealand's potholes. <laughs> <laughs> That could be the answer, Gary. That, that, that could be the new policy. That's true. Uh, the, answer, the answer to everything can be found in the Takaka region. Passion fruit filled potholes. Gary, only from Nelson. Great to have you on the show. Um, and keep up the good work. Yeah, thanks for the uh, the opportunity. And the potholes are, are just as big down here. Some of them, they're even building restaurants on them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gary. Uh, 
<laughs> uh, David Slack, Janet Wilson, happy Monday to you both. Thanks very much for being Cheers, on the bro. program. Pleasure. Uh, a big thanks to Ayana, uh, and I am back 3.45 with the horns, uh, and Lisa Owen and Checkpoint is next. <laughs>